Hey, thanks for joining us here today at Victory Church, where we invite people to belong before they believe. If you want to know more about who we are and what we do, or if any of our messages have impacted your life and you would like to partner with us in giving to this ministry, we invite you to do so by visiting our website at victory.church. Now, let's check out this week's message from our lead pastor, John Chesty. Well, welcome back to church, Victory Church. Uh, We're glad you're here. If you're a first-time guest, let me welcome you. We're honored that you're joining us, whether you're watching online uh, for the first time or maybe you're listening to this podcast years later or weeks later. Uh, We welcome you. If if you're at the Edmond campus here at the OKC campus, thank you for being here. Make yourself at home. You can uh, kick your feet up if you want, the seat in front of you. Don't kick the person in the back of the head. Uh, But we're glad you're here. And if you've been with us for a little bit now, you know the series we're in. Uh, before I get to jump into the series that we're in, let me just give you a couple of quick, you know, housekeeping announcements again. I did this last week, but I want to reiterate to the fellas uh, that this coming weekend is men's conference. It snuck up on you, uh, but it is here. It's this coming Friday and Saturday here at the Oklahoma City campus, and we need you to register. Um, uh, so don't don't wait any longer. And maybe you can come Friday, but you can't come Saturday. And maybe you can come Saturday, but you can't come Friday. I, I don't, it, it really doesn't matter. We, we encourage you to sign up and come, even if you can only come for one session. Uh, I believe that God moves in moments. And all through the Bible, you see these moments where God intercepts mankind for moments. It happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. It happened to, happened to Moses at a burning bush. And we must make ourselves available to these moments. And that's what we're believing that God's going to do at this men's conference. So, fellas, this men's conference is more important than your mulch. Okay? It, your yard can wait. I know. You've got to have it pristine and everything's got to be perfect for your neighbors. But it can wait. Okay? So don't, don't delay any longer. Get signed up uh, for this men's conference before you leave today. If you're online, go to the, go to the website and sign up today. I believe it's going to be uh, impactful. Also, we're asking you to send in testimonials, okay? Uh, Revelation chapter 1 says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, which means that our testimonies are actually what encourage other people to, to help them overcome their difficulties. And so at a church of this size, sometimes it becomes difficult to hear one another's testimonies because you get to to be a large church and you don't know other people in the church as well. So what we're asking you to do is send in a testimony to testimony at victory.church, okay? It can be big or small. We want to hear what God is doing in your life so that we can encourage others. We're going to have a a service in the coming weeks where we focus on this. We're going to do communion, which reminds us of the blood of the lamb. And then we're going to share what God's doing in this house through your life by the word of the testimony, and we believe that God's going to do some cool stuff. So uh, don't, don't, uh, don't think that your story is not significant enough to be told, okay? We want to hear what God's doing in your life, so sign up for that. Okay, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. Inside this season that we're on, Who Am I?, I've kind of been doing this little mini-series on the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15, and I'll, I'll wrap that up today. But I want to I dive back into this. If, if you've missed any of this series, maybe you haven't been here in a while or this is your first time ever, I highly encourage you uh, to go back and watch um, the first three. Uh, you know, I, one week I mentioned, you know, at Netflix, if you started a season of a show on Netflix, you wouldn't start with episode four. 
you'd be lost. You go back to episode one and you binge watch that sucker, don't you? Uh, Did you know you can binge watch church too? It's actually okay to binge watch church. Uh, You can go and binge watch this season that we've been in because it's really important what we've been talking about. Started off by talking about how Jesus told the disciples and in essence was telling us, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate, but the last part of that, uh, that, that phrase is he says, I will not leave you as orphans. So we've been talking about this idea that we are not spiritual orphans, that we're sons and daughters, that God is our heavenly father. He's a good father. And so we don't have to act like or behave like orphans. We can have the spiritual approach, our relationship with God, that we approach life as sons and daughters, not orphans. So that's just a, a quick recap. And then we started talking about the prodigal son. Uh, Last week, we talked about how the prodigal son, the one that ran away and squandered and wasted, he wanted, remember, says that he wanted his inheritance, and then it says he wasted it away. But I told you last week that we focus so much on the prodigal son and the mistakes that he made that sometimes we forget that the son that stayed home had just as many issues as the son that left. And so you see this orphan heart manifesting in both the son who left and wasted and squandered everything and in the son who never left home. Uh, The son who ran and left, he was basically telling his father, I don't need my father anymore. He ran. But the son who stayed home didn't even really know that he had a father. He didn't behave like he had a father. He behaved like he had an owner or a master. Uh, the, the, the text says, as we'll read in just a minute, that he was busy working in the fields with the slaves or as a slave. And so I want to talk about this and unpack this more. So let's go to Luke chapter 15. Uh, last week we read the first part of this story, which was the prodigal son who left. This week we're going to read the portion of the story that's all about the older son who stayed. It starts in verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields, and this is what he was doing. He was working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years, watch this terminology, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Last week, we talked about the prodigal son, and we labeled him, so to speak, as the orphan who wanted. He wanted something that he couldn't have, and so he went to try to find it. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about the one who stayed. We're going to label him as the orphan who worked. The orphan who worked. Of all the characters in this story, I can relate to this older son the most. Um, Isn't it? It's not fair. Let's just be honest. He, he stayed and worked. He did what he was supposed to do. Without him, there would have been no harvest. He was working in the fields. And the son goes and squanders, and you know we would call this in the church, he went to work on his testimony. 
Do you know, you know, it, isn't this so unfair? Even in the church, how we do this, like we're, we're, we can be guilty of this at times at Victory Church because we're so quick to want to celebrate the prodigal son coming home to the father. And it's amazing, this redemption story. It's amazing and it's worth celebrating. But have you ever seen me or any other pastor bring somebody up on stage and say, hey guys, today, I just want us to celebrate Roger. Roger's been married for 48 years. He's been faithful to his spouse for 48 years. He's worked at the same place for 48 years. He's been promoted three times. He's saved. He has a pension. He has a great retirement account. He raised three godly kids. They're all serving the Lord. They're all dedicated to the Lord. Isn't this great? We should celebrate this. No, we drag some guy up with three teeth and say, this guy was on meth. He did, he's, he's on his 12th wife, but now he's back and he's saved. And the church is like, oh. This is how, this is, has to be how this son felt, you know? He's like, what about me? I've been here the whole time. Uh, what, why, why, can't, why can't I be celebrated? What, what is it about me that's not, that's not good enough? And this is, to be totally honest with you, um, I am way more like the son that stayed home because I value hard work. It's one of my values. Um, if I'm being really honest with you, I have a really hard time respecting people who don't work hard. Um, because I just have that set of values. I was raised that way. Uh, and so if, if I'm not careful, I can frame someone in a box that I shouldn't have put them in, but I put them in there. And so this is the danger that I can get into because I relate with this older son. And I, and I, and I, wanna, I, want, I want the world to notice that this older son was right. But I want to remind us and caution us today, especially myself, to think like this uh, as the son who stayed home. Because if, if the, the prodigal son who ran away, last week we talked about that he had a rebellious spirit. So the, the prodigal son had an orphan heart that manifested itself as a rebellious spirit. The son who stayed home had an orphan heart who manifested as a religious spirit. He's a religious spirit. And there's caution to this. And I want to show you this in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. I'll show you how the Lord ties Paul's writings. He ties this idea of religious spirit to being an orphan and not being a son. It says this, it says, the mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And you did not receive, watch this wording, the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance. Some translations say adoption. You've been accepted, you've been received. You're not an orphan, you're a son. You've been adopted enfolding you into the family of God, and you will never feel orphaned. For as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, beloved father, or Abba father, or Papa, dad. Verse 16, for the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, you are God's beloved child. You see how Paul makes this connection. God did not give you a spirit of religion. Because a spirit of religion leads you to behave like an orphan. Orphans think they have to behave or perform in order to be loved. God didn't give you this. A spirit of religion thinks that I have to perform and do and be and act and behave and follow a set of values and rules and nothing more, nothing less. So I want to talk about this today. I want to do that by using a particular um, phrase for every single one of my points. I have five points. And to tell you what that phrase is going to be, I need to connect the dots for you. So do you guys remember Jeff Foxworthy's bit that he used to always do uh, where he would say, you might be a redneck if. 
Remember these? Um, I, I, I looked up a couple of them just for kicks and giggles so we can laugh some in church, okay? So there's one, there's one that's really good that says, uh, I got to read it because I'll mess it up. If you own a home that has wheels on it and several cars that don't have wheels on it, you might be a redneck. That's pretty good. Um, if you have a complete salad bowl set and all the bowls say Cool Whip on the side, you might be a redneck. <laughs> uh, if you think, now I'm on a roll. If you think the national anthem ends with the four words, gentlemen, start your engines, you might be a redneck. Okay, so with that heart, with that attitude, I'm going to give you five points, and all of my five points start with, you might have an orphan heart if, okay? So buckle up. Here we go. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. You might have an orphan heart if you harbor resentment. Went straight for the juggler, didn't I? The son, make this connection, the son who stayed home resented his brother. This is a word that we kind of know what it, is, what it is, what this word is, but we don't hear it a lot. We always hear bitterness or unforgiveness. Or, but I like this word resentment. When I think of the word resentment, I always think of the phrase that I see it, hear it used in. They use this word harbor resentment. Are you harboring resentment? And I like that because there's this idea of a harbor. A harbor is where boats go inside this place that's outside to the world. They come into this other place where the boat's safe and they remain. And as long as they're in there, they're good. And this is what we do with our pain and our bitterness. We harbor it. So we take resentment and we bring it inside and we just let it sit right there. Uh, let me give you the actual definition of resentment. The definition of resentment is a feeling of anger or displeasure stemming from a belief that one has been wronged by others. I'll take it a step further. You know what? I think this is my definition of resentment. Um, I think resentment is whenever I work really hard to achieve something and I don't get it, but you do. And you didn't do what you were supposed to do to deserve that, but I did. And now I resent you. Um, I had this value system that if I stick with the same company and work really hard for eight years and I'm never late to work and I do everything that they say and I follow the instructions and I do everything, 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 that eventually I'll get promoted. But you just got here. And you haven't done nothing. And you got promoted and I didn't. I resent you. Um, I tithe. And I believe by tithing that this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And I'm hoping and praying that one day I'll be debt free or I get a house or I get a car, whatever it is that we filter our brains through. And then we see somebody else come along that's living an ungodly lifestyle and they're not even a Christian and they don't tithe and they just bought a yacht. And we're like, what is going on? And we can, if we're not careful, we can build up resentment towards someone else. You see this happen a lot through the Bible. Uh, Cain resented Abel. Remember? Because they both brought their offerings to God. Abel brought first fruits. Cain, Cain brought, brought some fruits. But the Bible is very distinct that Abel brought his first fruits. He gave his first and most important to the Lord, and Cain did not. So Cain resented Abel. He resented him. Um, Joseph, remember Joseph, the coat of many colors? All of his brothers resented him. Because the father loved Joseph more than anybody else. So he gave him a special coat. And so all the brothers resented Joseph. 
He got what we deserved. Paul, remember the story in the book of Acts, Paul resented John Mark. Remember this story where there's this whole conflict? This is what I love about the Bible is it doesn't take the bad parts of our heroes of our faith and kind of skirt them off to the side and just elevate their good parts. Paul and John Mark and Barnabas got in a knockdown, drag out fight and split and parted ways because Paul resented John Mark because he bailed on the first missionary journey. So the next one comes around and Paul's like, oh, here you go. He's a punk. Last time he didn't come with us. He resented him because of what he did. So resentment is this thing. And I don't know who you represent, but I bet you resent somebody or something. If you're human, and you know, some of you can polish your halos all you want, but at the end of the day, we, we all have some, and it may not be a person, maybe it's a company. Or maybe it's a, maybe it's a party. Maybe it's a Republican party or a Democrat party or a president or a senator or a boss or an ex-wife or an ex-husband. I don't know who it is, but there's people or places or things or items in our life that if we're not careful, we can build up resentment for this. But I want to I wanna, um, encourage us all to be mindful of this. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is the love chapter. What I want to show you is that having the love of Christ and harboring resentment at the same time is impossible. Okay? Watch this. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is not resentful. The Bible says to love your enemies. How do you love your enemies if you're resentful to your enemies? Because this explicitly says that love is incapable of being in the same place as resentment. So what's the harm? What's the big deal? So I don't like that guy. What's the big deal? Uh, let, me, let me real quickly show you this and why it's a big deal. Here's the reaction. So every, every, um, every single thing that we have resentment towards will eventually cause a reaction. Okay? That's the, that's the main reason is because you can't just keep it inside forever. Eventually it's going to come out. And hopefully you don't end up on the nightly news or in jail when it does come out. Okay? Now I want you, want you to watch this where it comes out in this older son in verse 28. It says, The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. His, his, his resentment led to refusal. So you can see the value system. And this is why values, every one of you have values, whether you know it or not, or whether they're intentional or not, you have values. And when somebody crosses your values, you refuse. So if you value being on time to meetings, can I get an amen, somebody? Be on time, okay? I'm kidding. If that's a value of yours and somebody's late every single time, five minutes, ten minutes, every time, every time, every time, every time, every time, you will refuse to do business with them. Because your value system will create a wall that does not allow you to engage with whatever that behavior is. Okay, so this is what happens in him. He says, I have a value system. My value system is hard work. This son went and squandered it all. And so I refuse to be a part of this celebration, even though my father is celebrating it. You see the, the, the resentment there. So resentment always leads to reaction. Okay, this is the principle. Now, let me, let me show you what happened. This happened to Jesus. So Jesus is out doing, doing his thing. 
He's performing miracles. He's speaking with such wisdom that he's baffling people. And then all, on this one day, I'm going to read you this text, a bunch of his people that he grew up with is like, wait a minute. This is just Jesus. We grew up with Jesus. I, I mean, I saw him, her, his mom changed his diaper just like changed my diaper. Like, what makes him so special? And then it says in Matthew 13, verse 57, it says, and they were deeply offended and refused. They refused to believe. So your resentfulness will cause you to build up a wall of refusal, refusal towards something. This is the danger of it. Okay? So gain, let's go revisit some of these stories we talked about. Cain's resentment towards Abel led him to kill his brother. It manifested itself as murder. Joseph's brother's resentment led to a reaction of selling him into slavery. Um, think about Judas. I think Judas resented Jesus. Judas resented Jesus so much that he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Your, resentful, your resentfulness, if you're not careful, it will lead you into a reaction that can, that can be very, very dangerous. Now, I want to get to the root of it, okay? Let's go one layer deeper on the root of, of, of this toxic mindset. And I'm going to do it by going back into the story, and let's, let's, let's see what the older son said to the father. This will expose his resentment in verse 29. It says, all these years I've slaved for you. These are my markers of what is important in life. I slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And all, this, all that time you never gave me even a young goat or a feast with my friends. And here's, here's the comparison. Watch. Yet when this son of yours, not my brother, son of yours, like when you're talking about your kids and you're like, that son of yours, your son, you know, it says, when he comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrated by killing the fattened calf. Oh, here's our old friend comparison. If you really want to get to the root of resentment, even a layer deeper, it's because now all of a sudden we're comparing ourselves to someone else. Okay, so that leads me to my second point. You might have an orphan heart if you keep score. Okay, I'm a scorekeeper. I like to keep score. Um, we go to my, my kids' basketball games. Um, they're not keeping the stats of, of the individual players, but I am. <laughs> and my kid had eight points, and yours only had two. <laughs> Team, okay, whatever. My kid's better than yours. That's it. You know, when your kids are real young, I would go to their, their soccer games or baseball games or whatever, and I'd be like, where's the scoreboard? Oh, we don't, we're not keeping score today. We want everybody to feel like winners. I'm like, that's dumb. Somebody's losing. And if we're not going to announce it here, I'm going to tell my kids on the way home, you got your butt stomped. You need to get in the driveway and practice, okay? I like to keep score. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think we should keep score in sports. There's danger in this uh, when we try to keep score in our spiritual lives. Now, let's look at this. I want to read this in the Passion Translation. And I know not everybody's a fan of the Passion Translation. I like to read it from time to time as a comparison. And always keep it in comparison and text with other translations to compare and contrast. But I love verse 29. It says, the son said, Father, listen, how many years have I worked like a slave? Look at this word. Performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son. And I've never once, not one time, 
Who's keeping score now? Not one time have I ever disobeyed you. Do you know he asked this question? He's asking his father the question, how many years have I slaved for you? You know why he's asking that question? Because he knows the answer to it. He's been keeping track. And if the father said, oh, I kind of lost track, son. How long has it been? It's been eight years, six months, five weeks, three days, 12 hours, and 39 seconds. He's been, he's been keeping score. And he had this, this whole time, he was keeping score, and the father didn't even know there was a scoreboard. The father's just like, well, you're my sons. I love you. I, I wasn't keeping score. But the whole time that the prodigal son ran off, the, the sons at home was going, uh-huh. I didn't do that. You did. I didn't do that. You did. You didn't do this, but I did. I'm better than you. He's keeping score. And if we're not careful, y'all, we can get really good at keeping score as believers. The Pharisees did this. The Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the streets. So there's, there's, there's this comparison. Some pray this way, some pray this way. Um, watch what Martha said in Luke chapter 10, verse 40. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing, and she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Martha was keeping score. She had an orphan heart. She had a religious orphan heart. And Mary was fine to just sit at the feet of Jesus, sit in the presence of Papa, and be, have intimacy and identity. There's, you see the difference between a religious heart and an orphan heart. Um, growing up, I used to always hope that my teacher would do a grading scale based on a curve. Any teachers in the room? Any, any teachers in the room? Edmund, okay, see, raise your hand. Any teachers? Do any of you ever grade off, grade, set your grades for a test off the curve? No? These are, yeah, we got real teachers up in here. So th this curve system is basically, so let's say you get a 53 on your test. Do you know what you hope? You hope that nobody gets 100. That's what you hope. You hope that half the class get a 53 and maybe sprinkle an 80 in there somewhere because it's going to elevate your grade up. They're going to do it based on the curve, based on how everybody else in the classroom scored, okay? And if we're not careful, Christians, we can hope for a curve system. Religious people secretly hope that other people fail. This is why when somebody has a moral failure, it's a gossip central. It's like, did you hear that so-and-so did that? We should really pray for them. If somebody says we should pray for them, gossip's coming right behind it, okay? We, we now listen, I know I'm getting in people's business here. It's, okay, let me give you a different example. Uh, you know when there's a crash on the, or a fender bender or something on the road, and the, the wreck, the fender bender can be four miles off the road. Doesn't matter, there's gonna be a traffic jam. Because everybody's going to go, what's going on over there? They're rubbernecking. You know what rubbernecking is? Just look ahead and go. It's none of your business what's going on over there. Speed up. Do you know why, you know why we really like to do that? Because we look at them and we're like, amateur. <laughs> he hit the guardrail. What an idiot, you know? We're comparing. We like to look at other people's trash because it makes us feel better about ours because we keep score. We keep score. 
Jesus doesn't keep score. I, I love this phrase. Write this down. We grade righteousness on a curve. Jesus grades righteousness on a cross. It equals the playing field, guys. My sin is no greater than yours, and your sin is no greater than mine. It's Jesus' righteousness that makes, it's, it's, it's our right standing with Jesus, right, that makes us righteous. So if we're not careful as religious people, we can, we can slip down the very slippery slope of comparison to make ourselves, ourselves feel better. But I, I want to caution you that this is the behavior of orphans. When you live your life as a son, as a daughter of the Most High God, and you know that you have intimacy with the Father and that He loves you, you know that whether you run as a prodigal son and mess up, you can always come back home to the Father. And you also know that if you should decide to stay home, you don't have to work like a slave. You can just be home with your Father and, 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 and carve this, this religious spirit out of us. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Verse, uh, verse 26, let's look at this. It says, now the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned. And as he approached the house, he heard the music of a celebration and dancing. And he called over one of the servants, because he knew the servants really well, because he worked with them every day. And said, what's going on? Number three, you might have an orphan heart if you like to be in control. Now, I'm no psychologist, but I just want to, let me, let me do a psychological profile on this guy real quick. Okay, this, this, this son, because I feel like I can identify with this guy a lot, so I feel like I know this guy pretty well. Uh, let's use Enneagram, okay? I would guess uh, one of three Enneagrams for this guy, and if you don't know Enneagrams, no big deal, I'll, I'll walk you along it. I don't know it super well. I'm guessing he's like an eight. He's, the, he's like a little bit of a controller. He likes to, you know, he likes to bark orders, likes everything to be ducks in a row. Uh, maybe he's a one. Any ones in the house? The little perfectionist? You know, when, you're, when your husband empties the dishwasher, you have to go back behind him and redo it all because he put it all in the wrong spot? <laughs> Get in some business, aren't I? Maybe he's a three. He's an achiever. So picture this. He's been working in the fields all day. He comes back home and he's like, something's not right. This dude knew where every blade of grass was. The shovel doesn't go on the south of the barn. It goes on the east of the barn. Who moved the shovel? Put it back where it goes. Because he says to the servant, what's going on? What's going on around here? And the servant's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's a different day. There's a party going on. And he's not very happy about it. Now, now the danger, listen, I'm not saying that if, you, if you're an eight or a one or a three, you're a bad person. I'm an eight three, y'all. God uses every one of us in our ways. The problem is, is if we take our controlling self into our relationship with God, this is dangerous territory. It's dangerous territory. You'll slip right back into the, to the, to the, to the mode of comparing yourself to other Christians. And before you know it, you have become judge, jury, and executioner. Because now you're trying to control not just what God's doing in your life, but what God's doing in other people's lives. Just let the awkward silence sit for a second. <laughs> Okay, so um, spiritual orphans see Christianity as a contract. Okay, this is a big difference. They see it as a contract, and sons and daughters see Christianity as a covenant. So if, if Christianity, this is why a lot of people leave their faith. This is why a lot of people leave the church, because it just seems like a contract, and I just don't want to behave. 
you've given me a list of 4,000 things, and it's exhausting to even look at them. I can't cut my hair. I can't do this. I can't go out on Friday night. I can't dance. What in the world? I don't even want to be associated with that in any way. Because, we, because many people with, with a religious spirit see it as a contract. It's an agreement. You do this, and you get this. If you don't do this, you get this. But really, Christianity is a covenant. It's a relationship. I don't, I don't do most of what I do because if I don't, lightning's going to strike me. I do it because I love my Father. Amen. He's so good to me. And when I'm at home with the Father, I want to be the, like the Father. I don't do it because I have to straight, straighten up and salute. I do it because everything about the Father I'm madly in love with. And if I could just be a picture of the Father, if I could be a, a representer, a representation of the Father, if I could simply represent the Father... You see the difference between religion and relationship. This is the heart of the Father. This is us. And some, 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 some see Christianity as just a set of rules. I love, um, I read this book over the summer um, by John Mark Comer. It's called The Relentless, uh, I, let me look at it. The Relentless Elimination of Hurry. It's a great book. Um, he talked about trellises. He had this whole part. I love pictures. I love physical pictures. And he paints this whole picture of trellises. Trellises are these things that you put next to vines, and they're there to guide the vine. And most people see Christianity as the trellis that I have to, well, I got to straighten up, and this is my only option. I got to go up this, I got to go up this trellis. He said, no, the point of the trellis is not to make vines stand up straight, it's to produce fine wine. That there's a beauty, that there's fruitfulness that comes out of this when we have intimacy with the Father and when we're in proximity of the Father. Number four, write this down. Gotta move on. You might have an orphan heart if God is the man upstairs. If your view of God is, quote unquote, the man upstairs, you will behave like an orphan. Because God is not the man upstairs. He is your loving father who wants intimacy with you and wants to do life with you. Let me show you this, how this manifests in part of this text that stuck out to me. In verse 25, it says, Now the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned. Now, I want you to watch this distinction. And as he approached the house, okay, keep that in your head, he heard the music and in celebration and dancing. He called over one of the servants and asked, What's going on? The servant replied, Your younger brother, he's returned home. Do you know the difference between a house and a home? If I come to your home, it's a house to me. If you come to my home, you're coming to my home. This, in fact, this word house that you see in this text in the Greek is the Greek word uh, oikaye, and it means inhabitants, property, wealth, and goods. The old, older brother saw home as a property, as inheritance, as wealth. Work harder, get better. Work the land, produce fruit. Make the house look good, look good to the outside. Look good to those who come over to my house. I want, if, I'm, if I'm operating from an orphan heart, i got to make my house look good so that you'll be impressed with how my house looks. But I'm doing everything out of trying to impress you. The prodigal son got to the point where it says he was ran away from home, and it says, we, 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 we talked about this last week, and it says and when he finally came to his senses, he said, I'll just go home to Dad. I just want to go home to Papa. And your picture, we talked about this a little bit in one of the weeks, you know what's more important than who you are is your view of who God is. 
If your view of God is just some proverbial cosmic being, and if I behave and do right, just maybe he'll shine down on me, and maybe the man upstairs will, you know, do well for me, then you'll miss out on the true intimacy of what it means to be a son and daughter. Martha had this mindset. Let's go back to that story with Martha and Mary. Martha saw it all as an investment. Now, Jesus says back to Martha, 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 you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary chose to live life from home. Martha, you were too worried and upset about how the house looked and how your performance looked to Jesus. So this is the phrase that, that I encourage you to write down is, is this. Religion makes God the boss and you the employee. God the Father, uh, Jesus makes God the Father and you, and you the Son. Okay, these, these are some of the, the big differences there. Verse 29, let's go back. I got one more point for you. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Point number five, you might, be in, you might have an orphan heart if you settle for a goat. Now, remember, two or three times in this passage, it refers to the fattened calf. Okay? I also want to point out real quick, one of the reasons the son was so resentful is because it doesn't say, notice that the text doesn't say, one of the many fattened calves. Is there was only one. There was just one. And this older brother had his eye on that calf. And he walked by it every day, his mouth started watering, thinking about that ribeye. And he would go out into the fields every day and work and slave and work and slave and perform and perform and perform. One of the reasons he had so much resentfulness is because this fattened calf, singular, got slaughtered for the son who did everything wrong. So he settled for a goat. <laughs> Ribeye was on the menu. And this guy was too busy licking his wounds in resentment. Because it says the father came out like tried to try to reason with him, son, man, I, you like it medium rare. I got one for you right in here. It's ready to eat. I've already got it. It's good. And it says that his brother was so full of resentment that he refused to go in. Did you know that uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ could receive a blessing that God wants you to partake in, but you're so busy, frustrated that somebody else got the blessing that you miss out on what God's doing because you refuse to go in because of resentment. So he's so focused in on his pain that he settles for less. He settled for slavery when he really had sonship. This is really what was happening in his heart. Now, I want to, I want to watch what the father says back to him, and I'll close with this. Verse 31, it says, the father said, my son, you are always with me by my side and everything I have is yours to enjoy. In two sentences, his father gives him and reminds him of everything he would ever need. The first thing his father was reminding him is, of is his inheritance, his inheritance. He was saying, son, you're my son, like, you, you, you get this. You're part of this inheritance. Now watch what it says in verse 12. Verse 12. Now this goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. I, I had to go back and recheck this. Because it says, so the father agreed. This is after the prodigal son. 
said, I want my share of, of the inheritance and I'm going to leave. And it says, so the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Plural. This son, the older son, had already received his portion. Equal. Like, he got his portion. In fact, we don't know, the, we don't know exactly how this story goes, but we know in this culture the older son gets more. Older son gets more of the inheritance than the younger son. So here this guy is mad and asking for a goat when there's a ribeye on the table and he's already received his inheritance as a son. This is the danger of resentment. You can be so obsessed with what's happening to other people that you forget the goodness of God in your own life. You forget how good you have it. Because by the way, Scripture tells us, I'll show you the verse, we already have everything we need. In, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. We got everything we need. The second thing that the father gave the son in these two sentences was intimacy and identity. In this one sentence where he said, my son, you are always with me by my side. By my side. First thing he does, he calls him, what does he call him? My son. Son. He didn't say, hey, dude. Hey, idiot. <laughs> That's what he deserved to be called. Hey, orphan. With two words, he gives him identity. Son, you've always been by my side. Intimacy. Intimacy. I give you everything you need. It's yours, inheritance. And I'm always going to be by your side. You know what Jesus said to his disciples, and he said it to us right before he ascended? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Intimacy. Intimacy. Identity. Intimacy. Identity. I think the thing that probably upsets me the most about this parable is that there is no ending. That's the end. This is like the movie that I'm watching and then the screen goes black and I'm like, oh, don't you dare. Uh-uh. Don't you stop right here. If you put the credit on the screen, I'm going to throw this Coke at the TV because there is some unfinished business. Did, they, did the marriage work out? Did he die? The, what happened? I have no idea what happened. I, hate, I want to write a letter to the writer of that movie. And she's like, hey, idiot, what happened? Is there a sequel? What's going on? And this is how this parable ends. It's just like the, the father says, hey, everything I have is yours. And I'll always be with you. You're always with me. I'm like, and what do you do? Did he punch his brother in the face and storm off? Did he go in and eat a steak? Did he... You know, maybe he stole a goat. I don't know what he did. I don't, I don't know what happened. I'm just left going, well, God, what happened? I think it may have been left unended on purpose because you and I get to end it. You and I get to end this story for every single one of our lives. We get to write the ending of how this ends. Because some days I'm the prodigal son who runs off like an idiot and squanders what God has given me. And the finish of my story should always be I need to turn tail and run back to my father and he will always embrace me every single time even if I do it every day he'll always be there to embrace me or maybe the next day I'm the guy who's resentful maybe my orphan heart 
tomorrow will manifest with a religious heart where I thought that I had put God in this cute little box and as long as everything works the way that I put God to work in the world, then everything's hunky-dory. But if one thing gets out of whack, then I'm like, God, I don't understand. Are you even real? Every day we do this. Every day we must choose. I felt the need to close. I always struggle with how to close messages because there comes a point where my work is done (laughs) and then I don't know exactly what the Spirit wants to do uh, in all of our lives. But for some reason, as I was studying, um, as I led up to today, one of the things of all these points that are, you know, applicable to all of us, the one that really just kind of rose to the surface every time was this idea of resentment and how if we're not careful, we can allow resentment. You know, resentment is this thing, it's like we, we pull out this arrow and we put poison at the end of the dart and we're ready to poison somebody. We're just looking for somebody to shoot at. But we don't realize is when we're doing this, we're poisoning ourselves. The poison is seeping into me and it's doing way more harm to me than it would ever do to the person I intended to shoot it at. And this resentment is like a cancer that if, you don't, if you're not careful, it will eat away at you and it'll start to manifest in ways and you'll begin to react based on your resentment and it'll produce really bad fruit in your life. And so if you don't know if you're harboring resentment, can I tell you, you probably are. You probably are. Because I know that I do sometimes. We all do sometimes. We're human. So I want to just kind of walk us through a process here. I want to pray for you. Um, if you don't know if you're harboring resentment, I'll give you one clue, okay? Um, if there's an area of your life where a certain name is brought up or a situation is brought up or a company is brought up and something bubbles up in you and what comes out of you is not one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace. Oh, it's just so peaceful. Oh, so much joy coming out of me right now. I want to punch this guy in the face. (laughs) If something bubbles up in you and what comes out of you is not love or joy or peace or patience or long-suffering or forbearance, chances are there's a little bit of resentment there. So how do you get rid of resentment? Well, if you're going to harbor resentment, you're going to bring resentment in and you're going to hold it. So the first thing you got to do is bring it out of the harbor. Bring it out. Talk talk to somebody about it. Talk with a mentor. Talk with a pastor. Talk with a counselor. Bring it out of your harbor and have an honest conversation with somebody about it. Okay, that's step number one. Bring The Bible would say bring it into the light. Because if it's in the darkness, God can't deal with it. So you bring it into the light and you have a conversation with about it. And then I believe it's the orphan heart is so tied to it that the only way to overcome resentment is to replace the resentment with the love of the Father. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. And sometimes it's very, very, very important for you to realize that, that you're, it's not just you that's a son or daughter. The person that you have resentment towards is a son and a daughter. Chances. Chances are. Okay, so I replace this with the love of the Father. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes for just one second? Real quickly, no one's looking around. I want to give this person privacy. Listen, um, I'm going to ask you to respond in just a minute by showing your hands. What I want you to know, my promise to you is I'm not going to call you out. You're not going to have to stand up. You're not going to have to, I'm not going to put a microphone in your mouth and say, what's wrong? No, you're not going to have to come to the front, nothing like that. What you're saying is, Lord, there might be an ounce, a little bit of resentment that I have towards X, whatever it is. Okay, 
And by showing your hand, what you're saying is, God, I recognize it, and I no longer want the enemy to have authority and power over my life in this area. Okay? So at the Edmond and the Oklahoma City campus, on the count of three, I just want you to shoot your hand up. One, two, three. Shoot it up. Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay. All right. Wow. Trying to let that sink in for a minute. Well, whatever that is, I want you to kind of bring it to the forefront of your mind. Try to, I'm not trying to ask you to go all psychological on me, but I am asking you to bring it to the forefront of your mind and expose it for what it is. And don't make excuses for it, just for a second. Because I know the temptation is to say, well, you know, but, and they shouldn't have, and they could have, and they didn't. That's, you're probably right. Chances are you're probably right. But just for a second, I want you to bring it to the forefront and expose it for what it is and acknowledge in your spirit that this is not from God. That's all I'm asking you to do. And by doing this, you're, you're pulling it out of your harbor and you're saying, I don't, I don't really need to hold on to this because it's outside of the context of my authority. And I'm not the judge, jury, and executioner. So God, what we're doing in this moment by going through this exercise is we are removing it from our heart and we're laying it at your feet. We're saying that there's something in me, God, that does not bring honor to the person, the place, the thing. It doesn't bring, and it certainly doesn't bring honor to you, God. And so, God, I know that there's people that are harboring this resentment. And, Father, I want to be sensitive to say that, man, you, have, you probably deserve justice. You're probably right. You're probably right. But, Father, we don't want this poisonous dart to poison us. And so we bring it before you, Father, and we ask that you would replace it with the love of a father. And we approach you as sons and daughters. And we know that our Father, our Papa, loves us so much. You receive us. You accept us. It doesn't matter if we've been rejected by the world, rejected by a boss, rejected by a spouse, rejected by a friend. We can take rejection in this world because we have acceptance in the loving arms of our Father. And so we run back to you, Father. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us here today for this week's message. And here at Victory Church, we are called to equip people to live in His presence, move beyond ourselves, and be transformed. And this can only happen through your radical generosity, your serving, and your prayers. If this message or any of our messages have impacted your life and you would like to partner with us by giving into this ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at victory.church/give. Thank you again for joining us and have a great day.